American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to another another episode episode of American American Timelines. I'm Amy. And I'm a gay bee. A gay bee? What's a gay bee? What's a gay bee? (laughs) That's Joe. And we are the podcast that brings you nostalgic, interesting, and crazy events in American pop culture history year by year. That's debatable. So this is part two of 1970. 1970. We are in the 70s. That's right. So um, in if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that because uh, that will help you with this part. Unless you're only listening to this as a favor to us and you're really only half listening anyway. You're just like, there, I listen to you idiots. Then just do whatever you want. Yeah, that could be a possibility too. Um, so I was talking about a big event and that happened in 1970. And I Murder. chose. Yes, I chose the case of Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, who uh, at 3.42 a.m. on February 17th, 1970, uh, murdered his. Well, who called 911 and said that his wife and two children were murdered. Yes, that's by all a we know. Cult. We don't know what for sure happened because this is the 70s. DNA test didn't exist. Yes. Nobody knows what really ever happened. So and everything so, is just false. So he said probably. he said that they there was these hippies that came in these mysterious and hippies this came girl in. with long hair and a big floppy hat and big, she had a candle and she was chanting acid as groovy kill the pigs because that's what people who weren't hippies thought that's all hippies did was yeah ch- have candles and chant random weird things that's exactly because they didn't understand what hippies were okay so um on Jul- listen to we, that jimmy hendrix we are on july 5th 1970 and um in and this goes until this is called the we'll art- start with July fifth. This is called the Article Thirty Two hearing. Okay, and it's like a military equivalent to a trial. Okay, since he's a soldier and he's on, he gets a military. He gets a military. Yeah. It's a military because he's a Fort Fort Bragg. Yeah, that's right. right. North Kakalaka. See, so I listened. They um, the defense in this case concentrated on the poor quality of the oh. investigation because they yeah. they let all, it wasn't a secured crime scene, and the existence of suspects uh-huh. and specifically there was this woman that the defense found named helena stokely who matched the description of, of the woman with the candle yes Holy. she she had been seen with a floppy hat on and blonde wig and um she and she was this drug addict around town huh. so um the defense so the defense claimed that the the cid didn't properly manage the crime scene but um there were several pieces of critical evidence, like the four tips of the gloves that were found. Um, you know how the word pig was written on the headboard in blood? Right. And they f- they found surgical gloves. Yeah, that, that he had already in the house, right? Yes. That's what you said last yes. time. Yes. And um, they had um, been lost. Sorry about that. They'd been lost, and also the skin found under Colette's fingernails. They, they had collected that, and they'd lost it. So the evidence 
went missing is what you're yeah. saying. So that's, that's one of the things that defense was claiming. And they also claimed that um, they located... Wait, 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 wait. The defense was claiming that it was missing? or No, the defense is claiming that it, it got lost. See, they're trying to prove that the investigation was a, a mess. Oh, they're trying... Okay. Yeah. So they... I would think they, they would... They would want to say that it never existed wouldn't they if they were well no the damn the they're they're trying to prove that they were a bunch of clowns in there and oh, they okay. weren't doing then they also um they also located this helena stokely and when you say a bunch of clowns you don't mean uh like big shoes red nose no. makeup no i don't um more like ass clowns exactly so they located stokely who was this well-known drug user and that's a lady yeah, and and there's they found other witnesses that claimed that she had admitted it, and um, but they're they're all drug users, so it's hard to it's hard. They're not exactly reliable, right? Exactly. So that's the Article Thirty Two hearing, and um, once that started on the day that started, actually, Air Canada flight on July fifth, nineteen seventy, Air Canada flight six twenty one crashes near Toronto International Airport, killing one hundred and nine people. The crash was caused by poor landing procedures and inadvertent pilot error. The terrible accident came less than two days after another jet crash had killed more than 100 people in Spain. Jeez. The roots of this accident can be found in the working relationship of pilot Peter Hamilton and his co-pilot Donald Rowland. What? They got, got in a fight guess, or something? Uh, I'm thinking more of a sexual thing. Let's see. What? Though, though they were colleagues who often flew together, they frequently disagreed. Okay, it's not a sexual thing. <laughs> they disagreed over the procedure. <laughs> you for, would they jump to that. For, well... It's in the relationship. I mean, a relationship is always, almost always sexual. No, it's not. Oh, name three relationships you have that aren't sexual. You're ridiculous. What? Me? Me? I'm ridiculous? All right, keep reading, anyway, please. they disagreed on the, the, the procedure for deploying the wing spoilers at landing. The spoilers are the parts of the wings that assist in braking when they're put in the right position. Hamilton preferred to arm the spoilers or get them ready for deployment early in the landing process when the plane was 2,000 feet high, although this was against company policy. Mm-hmm. Roland agreed, eventually agreed to arm the spoilers before landing, but only when the plane was just above the ground. On this day, Roland accidentally deployed the spoilers rather than merely arming them as the plane was approaching Toronto's airport. The premature deployment immediately caused the right wing to plunge to the ground. One engine on the right side fell off, and the loss of weight sent the plane back into the air. Hamilton tried to regain control and attempt another landing as he did another engine, and then the whole right wing detached from the plane. The DC-8 broke into pieces in midair near the airport. All 108 people on board were killed. Man, that's a downer. I don't know why it said 109 uh, at the beginning, but... uh, Maybe somebody... Maybe they they died (laughs) and they came back to life. Resurrected. Yeah. What I'm thinking is, there was a secret person on board. So later they found out, oh, Jim Jim Flanagan was there too. He's he, a stowaway. He, yeah, stowaway. They found un- an extra body. Oh, down in people. the luggage. Or maybe one. Maybe the uh, the marshal. The uh, fl- uh, not the marshal, but the, what's the landing? The guy who mm-hmm. tells him where to maybe where those, to park. one of those guys died the or air, something. Uh, what do they call those guys? The um, the landing guys. Landing marshal guy. Maybe they hit one of those guys. So maybe that's how. It was maybe it was a guy. zombie situation where they. Brought them. Ba- they they came back to life after they that person died, and they were like brains. And people are like, well, some people would consider that another person that died. And then the next group's like, yeah, but he's back to you know he's that's, back to life. Well, well, that's likely. I bet it's more likely that it was just a, a typo on Wikipedia. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> it could be that could instead be. of any of this. And then on Saturday, July eleventh, nineteen seventy, we have a new number one single on the Billboard charts, overthrowing the Jackson Five. It's Three Dog Night. Ooh, what song? 
Mama told me. Mama told me not to come. She said, that ain't the way to have fun. Song, that ain't the way to have fun. That's a good song. I decided to let you take that because I I don't think I heard it until I listened to this. Oh, for that's this. a great I, song. I hadn't heard of it. It was pretty groovy. Yeah, it is. Um, now, Three Dog Night, That they're most known for a uh, different song, though, right? For um, What's their mm. biggest song? I don't know. I think so. I think there's. I think they have a lot of. Uh, they're songs. not. Uh, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. That's. Uh, is Maybe, that three dog night? Yeah, that might be yeah. them. Jeremiah. Whoa. Yeah, that yeah, might okay. be them. I think it's them. Anyway, you'll never guess who wrote this song. Who? Randy Newman. Oh really? Yeah. Well, it's kind of a funny song. Yeah, I guess can you can picture him singing. Yeah, that? I mean, no, I. Mama told me not to come. Yeah, he wouldn't Mama do it the same me way. Not. Do come. I can't do Randy Newman. No, you can't. I'm, no, trying to do the, I'm trying to do the family guy, Randy Newman. Yeah. Now I'm walking in the tree. Now he's punching me in the face. I can't yeah. remember how that goes. Anyway. That's yeah, uh, not bad. So you love that song? I do. And then on Saturday, July 18th, 1970, George the Animal Steel fought Bruno Sammartino in a cage match at the Boston Garden. I thought there wasn't going to be any <laughs> wrestling. You found it? I dug up some wrestling, baby. Oh, There's not a lot of 1970 on the WWE Network, Yeah, but I found an old George Animal Steel against Bruno Sammartino cage match. Did you watch it? Yeah, I did, and it was interesting because... From 1970? Yeah, because George Animal Steel was big in the 80s, and he was I always knew him as this old, fat, short, fat guy, mm-hmm. and with back hair and he was just uh he was a little less fat yeah <laughs> but he was still, still covering same. back hair and acting like he has uh disabilities yeah um and of course bruno san martino won the cage match and then on saturday july 25th 1970 the carpenters take over the billboard chart number one spot with um is it why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near just, Just like me, they long to be close to you. Is, was that right? Uh, uh, yep, that's right. Oh, wow. Written by Burt Bacharach in 1964. Yeah, that's another good one. Yep, of course it wasn't really good until Rick Moranis sang it in Parenthood. Yeah, I don't agree. You don't agree? I don't agree. You want to wrestle right now? No, we're not doing that. I will wrestle you right to the ground. And then we're going to jump all the way to August. Monday, August 10th. 1970, um, yes. do, you, do you have your anger hat on? Because you're about to get mad. Um, All right. Did you know that up until 1970, uh, United Airlines had um, men-only flights? What? Uh, the New York and Chicago executive were advertised as a club in the sky for men only. With business so it's like a Playboy Mansion with, in the sky? With business-oriented amenities, free cigars, and a steak dinner served by stewardesses, the only women aboard. Oh, my God. Can you imagine having that job as a woman? A lawsuit by feminists ended the flights. I mean, can you imagine being a stewardess on that flight? No, but... There's probably gang rapes going on. That, but really, the dudes are probably all just sucking each other off. You think? Don't you think? Like, no women. Why not? They, but no, they have women. They're yeah, work, no, yeah, working they're probably, there. Yeah, you're right. They're probably just exploiting them and... Oh. Treating him like rabbit. That Trump was on a lot of them. Yep. The Trump family. Um, but what actually happened on this date, um, so that was one of the things, but it's also on August 10th, there was another thing that had uh, that didn't allow women. McSorley's Old Ale House, the oldest, oldest Irish tavern in New York City, was founded in 1854. It did not allow women inside until 1970. Attorneys Faith Seidenberg and Karen de 
DeCrow filed a discrimination case against the bar in district court and won. The two entered McSorley's in 1969 and were refused service, which was the basis for their lawsuit for discrimination. The case decision made the front page of the New York Times on June 26, 1970. Sweet. Uh, it established that as a public place, the bar could not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution. The bar was then forced to admit women, but it did so kicking and screaming. Barbara Shum was the bar's first female patron. With the ruling allowing women to be served, the bathroom became unisex. Sixteen years later, a ladies' room was installed. Oh, wow. Sixteen years later? Yeah. I don't know about you, but I don't I don't really... It kind of defeats the purpose for me to go to a bar if there's no ladies there. Right. Like, you want ladies there, fellas. Right. <laughs> I guess unless it's a gay bar. A gay bar. Maybe it was. Yeah, maybe... Maybe it's just like, okay, we'll let women in here. Jeez. I know. They just want our apple teenies. <laughs> they, want to, they want our our good advice on clothing. Antiques. On um, yeah, so 1970 was a big year for ladies. They could take flights and oh my God. drink beers. It's insane that it was that late. I know. It's weird. You don't you think of women's suffrage and rights and everything as being so old and so long ago. But Well, 70 was kind of long ago. It is but long ago. 70 was, what's that, 60 years ago now? 75 years ago? 1970? No. Uh, 71 years? 83? 90? 40? 30? 20? 10? It's it, like 40. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I actually know. Uh, I know. What I just, is it? Well, I was born in 76 and I'm 42, so... The seven D would be subtract the six from add six to it. Carry the four. Yeah. So Saturday, August twenty second, nineteen seventy. Mm-hmm. Bread. Oh, I can't remember what they sing. Make it with you. You don't remember how that goes? No. Um, Not from the title. Yeah, I. So I listened to all these for like a week, but uh, I think I deleted the play. This was not good. Um, but I have a funny thing. What kind of what kind of music is it? It's like soft rock. A lot of this was soft rock in the 70s. Yeah. Oops. In, in 70, at least. In 70, yeah. Well, on this year, this year in particular, was a lot of soft rock. 70, and I've, I've listened to a lot of 71 already. And yeah. it's a lot of soft rock. Um, but when the song was released, David Gates' mother was asked, he's in the band, he was asked by a local interviewer how her son's music career was going, and she misunderstood... The song's title, she replied that his group had just recorded a, recorded a song called Naked With You. And it's also, all, but it's Make It With You. Oh. I'm make it I want to make it with you, something like that. Yeah. yeah. All these 70s songs, they make me think of, it's just like, it brings back such vivid memories of like mm-hmm. riding in the back seat of the car. Mm-hmm. And, me too. And like. Being a young child. Yeah, like being like before school and I didn't, you know, my brothers all went to school and I had to just go where my mom went. I remember like going through the bank line every time, the drive through the bank and just having to go everywhere she went and just had yeah. unstructured alone time with my mom because the kids were gone, but, or the brothers were gone. And just like, just being a child and. Mm-hmm. Not much at like, yeah, really not knowing what the hell is going on, right? Me, you know? Yeah, but like it just reminds me of childhood, I guess. It's mm. always on the radio. The music because my mom always had music on, the radio was always on, there's always music going, so yeah, it's kind of weird. Really, that soft 70s, and that's another thing our kids aren't going to have this music all the time, like they're not going to go back and remember 
this certain part in their life for the the popular music of the time. Like even if we do play music, which we don't play enough, I don't think. I do but it all the time in the car with the kids. It, even when we do play music, it's not the current pop hits most of the time for and you know it's stuff that we like. No, do, no, I let Audrey play all the pop songs. Oh, you do? But she tells me what's popular. Oh, yeah. Because I don't know. I wouldn't know. I guess maybe they will know some. But. Yeah. that's. I think that's different, too, because there's just so much more music out there now than yeah. there was in the 70s. And, that's uh, true. So maybe it's that. But anyway, that's, that's a garbage song. I don't think it's that bad. You don't? Nope. Well, you're wrong, so... <laughs> Saturday, August 29th, 1970, Edwin Starr takes over the Billboard charts with... No idea. War. Oh. <laughs> good God. Yo, what is it good for? Absolutely, Absolutely nothing. nothing. That's, a, that's a good song. Did you know that the Temptations originated that song? Did they? But uh, a lot less intensely. Yes. It really wasn't... Mother. It didn't sound as like... Uh, it wasn't like <laughs> a hippie like fighting the yeah. war thing. Yeah. Um, so you can tell it's the same song, but it's... A lot different. Yeah, yeah I not, bet. Not that iconic one we all have grown to love. Yeah. And then uh, Tuesday, September 1st, 1970, um, there was a little bit of controversy in the Mr. Olympia final that year. Oh, yeah? In 1970. Um, are you familiar with Mr. Olympia? No. Well, in the Mr. Olympia final, the judges could not decide between Arnold Schwarzenegger mm. and Sergio Olivia. So the two of them exhausted Agreed. They made an agreement together to walk off together. So nobody would actually win. Sergio left, but Arnold, after taking one step, turned back to the judges, made fun of Sergio for leaving, and started posing again and won. Oh, well, dirty. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Sergio had beat Arnold in 1969. Oh. So he had to pull out all the stops. Yep. I, some people call that cheap. Cheating. Cheating. And yeah. cheap, and, uh, cheap shot. Well, it tells you what kind of character person he is. You know, if I was the judge, I'd be like, uh, <laughs> sorry, pal. The other guy wins yeah, for I would leaving. Because you're a dick. You dick. How could you do that to Sergio like that? Yeah, that's crap that they let him win. Okay. And now I hope you strap in your strap strap yourself. Stri- put your strap on on. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering <laughs> what you were trying to say. Strap yourself. This is a, this is a doozy. All right. Okay. September 17th, 1970. Although the details of Jimi Hendrix's last day and death are unclear and widely disputed, he had spent much of September 17th in London with Monica Daneman. Mm-hmm. He awoke late that morning at Daneman's apartment in the, in the Smarkland, Smarkend Hotel. Mm-hmm. By around 2 p.m., he was sitting in a garden area outside the apartment enjoying some tea while she took photographs of him holding his favorite Fender Stratocaster guitar that he called the Black Beauty. In the opinion of author Tony Brown, Jimmy doesn't look particularly healthy in these photographs. His face seems a little puffy, and on only a few of these pictures does he attempt to smile. These would be his last pictures. Mm. Uh, the day of his death. Yeah. That's that's amazing that they have those. Yeah. According to Danman, by 3 p.m., they had left the apartment to use a bank. They continued on to Kensington Market, where Hendricks signed an autograph for a young boy, purchased a leather jacket, and ordered some shoes. Mm-hmm. Hendrix and Daneman then went to a Chelsea Antiques market where Hendrix purchased more clothing and another and another stopped to buy writing paper, which he used to compose his final lyrics. Daneman and Hendrix drove to his suite at the Cumberland Hotel, meeting Devin Wilson as she walked down, down King's Road. Now, according to I.B. Dreamy's live journal, it's the only place I could find info about who Devin Wilson. De- okay. It's either Devon or Devin Wilson, D-E-V-O-N. Mm-hmm. Devon is a lady. 
she was romantically linked to Jimi Hendrix, Mick Jagger, Brian Jones, Eric Clapton, Dwayne Allman, Miles Jeez. Davis, Quincy Jones. So she was like a, she was like one of the first uh, groupies. Yeah. But but like like a famous one. Oh, so okay. Sort of like she was known to do it with all the, stars, yeah. the big stars. Jeez. And she there was pictures of her online. She is beautiful. Beautiful. Um, so she's like kind of like a madam to these guys. Mm-hmm. She was considered a super groupie. Uh, a lot of people thought she was deceptive and unlikable, and uh, uh, she was known to spike the drinks of people she considered her rivals. Um, oh. One well-known story about Devon or Devon is that she threw a birthday party for Jimmy on his 27th birthday, but she left a, left the party to have sex with Mick Jagger. It's been said that Jimmy Hendrix wrote the songs Dolly Dagger and Freedom about Devon. Wow. Um, so Hendrix asked Danman to stop the car so that he could get out and talk with Wilson when she stopped by. She had invited, Wilson invited Hendrix to a party that evening. Danneman became jealous, giving Wilson a cold stare during the brief meeting. Later, Philip Harvey invited Danneman and Hendrix to tea, and they accepted. Prior to their arrival at Harvey's, they briefly stopped by the Cumberland. While at the hotel, Hendrix made several telephone calls. Late afternoon and evening, after stopping at the Cumberland, Hendrix and Danneman accompanied Harvey to his apartment, arriving around 5.30 p.m. Hendrix and Danneman smoked hashish and drank tea and wine with Harvey and two of his female companions while discussing their careers. Sometime around 10 p.m., Danneman apparently feeling left out of the conversation uh, and jealous of the attention Hendrix was giving Harvey's female friends, became visibly upset and stormed out of the flat. Hendrix followed her, and an argument ensued between them, during which Danneman reportedly shouted, You fucking pig! Or she probably yelled it like, You fucking pig! I should have you mm. yell that because you're a lady. Okay. Um, Harvey, concerned that their yelling would draw unwanted attention from the police, asked them to quiet down worrying that Danneman might resort to serious physical violence. Mm-hmm. According to Harvey, Danneman verbally assaulted Hendricks in the most offensive possible way. Approximately 30 minutes later, Hendricks re-entered the flat and apologized for the outburst before leaving with Danneman at 10.40 p.m. Danneman said she then prepared a meal for them at her apartment around 11 p.m. and shared a bottle of wine with Hendricks. Sometime after returning to the apartment, Hendricks took a bath, then wrote a poem titled The Story of Life. At approximately 1.45 a.m. on Friday, September 18th, Danneman drove Hendricks to the party Wilson had invited him to earlier that day, which was hosted by Hendricks' acquaintance and business associate, Pete Cameron. Mm-hmm. At the party, Hendricks complained to Cameron about business problems, ate some food, and took at least one amphetamine tablet. What Pro- What time was that? This is at 1.45 a.m. Oh, okay. So, like, the next day, yeah. Thursday night, in the morning, like between Thursday and Friday. Approximately 30 minutes later, Danneman rang the flat's intercom asking for Hendricks. Another guest, Stella Douglas, asked her to return later. According to guest Angie Burden, the estranged wife of Eric Burden of the animals, when Danneman came back around 15 minutes later, Douglas used an assertive approach with her to the point of being impolite. Undeterred, Danneman demanded to speak with Hendricks. Burden recalled, uh, Burden recalled, Hendricks got, Jimmy got angry because Danneman wouldn't leave him alone. According to Burden, other guests at the party shouted, out the windows at Danneman, asking her to leave. Hendricks eventually yielded and spoke with Danneman before unexpected, unexpectedly leaving the party around 3 a.m. Danneman, the only eyewitness to Hendricks's final hours, said that sometime after 3 a.m., she prepared two tuna fish sandwiches for them after arriving back at her basement apartment. Around 4 a.m. Tuna fish? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's quite a. After a lot of a lot of drinking and partying and amphetamines. That's the first thing I want. I want some tuna, tuna fish. fish. Yeah, you want to do some amphetamines and eat some tuna fish? At 4 a.m., Hendricks, struggling with insomnia after having consumed amphetamines hours earlier, asked her for sleeping tablets. She later said she refused his request, hoping he would fall asleep naturally. Danneman said she surreptitiously took a sleeping pa- 
said she surreptitiously took a sleeping tablet sometime around 6 a.m. with Hendricks still awake. She woke sometime between 10 and 10.20 a.m. to find him sleeping normally in bed next to her. She said she then left to purchase cigarettes, and when she returned around 11 a.m., found him in bed breathing, although unconscious and unresponsive. She telephoned for an ambulance at 11.18 a.m., and one arrived at 11.27 a.m. When ambulance crew members Reg Jones and John Sawa arrived at the Samarkand, the door to the flat was wide open, the gas fire was on, the curtains were drawn, and the apartment was dark. The crew called out several times, but after receiving no response, they entered and found Hendricks alone in bed. In bed. Danman was nowhere to be found. According to Jones, well, we had to get to the police. We only had Hendricks and an empty flat, so John ran up and radioed and got the aspirator. It was horrific. He was covered in vomit. There were tons of it all over the pillow. Black and brown it was. His airway was completely blocked all the way down. We felt his pulse, showed a light in his eyes, but there was no response at all. At 11.30 a.m., police officers Ian Smith and Tom Keene responded to a call for police assistance from the Ambulance Control Center. Jones commented, commented once the police arrived, which seemed like no time at all. We got Jimi Hendrix off to a hospital as quick as we could. The ambulance crew left the hotel approximately 11.35 a.m. to take Hendrix to St. Mary Abbott's Hospital, and they arrived at 11.45 a.m., Medical registrar Dr. Martin Seifert added, Jimmy was rushed into the resuscitation room. He was put on a monitor, but it was flat. I pounded his heart a couple times, but there was no point. He was dead. According to Seifert, the attempt to resuscitate Hendrix lasted just a few minutes. The surgical registrar, Dr. John Bannister, commented, He was cold and he was blue. He had all the parameters of someone who had been dead for some time. We worked mm-hmm. on him for about half an hour without any response at all. Bannister pronounced Hendrix dead at 12.45 p.m., on Friday, September 18th, 1970, he was 27 years old. That's so sad. He was so talented. Yeah, he it was just unbelievable. Yeah, he was. But you kind of, like, it really makes you think now, you know, I, just, I was drugs, whatever. I'm choking on his own vomit and everything. But yeah. Like, with all that jealousy that day with her. I like, know. It sounded like. Who knows what she might have given I him. totally thought it could buy the murder. Yeah, because it sounds like he just had one amphetamine, didn't take any sleeping pills. And he choked on it. I mean, unless he might have taken something himself. Like he might yeah, have snuck him or he something. might have. T- well, after she left, he might or have took more. Who knows what she put in his food or the tuna fish sandwich? I mean, she fed him a lot. Yeah, she did. After being fucking pissed at him. I, that's true. So yeah, I don't know. Um, a little bit about Monica Danneman. She was a German figure skater and a painter, mainly known as the last girlfriend of guitarist singer Jimi Hendrix. But later, she became the wife of German guitarist Yuli John Roth of the Scorpions. Jeez. <laughs> and she didn't kill him. <laughs> no. She's no, like, they're still Jimi Hendrix and the guy from the Scorpions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, well. Went down the tubes I guess a little I'll bit just here. Rock you like a hurricane. I guess yeah. I'll just go out with a scorpion. One of the Scorps. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, anyway, that's that's the story of Jimi Hendrix's last days. That's sad. Yeah. It's, it's sad. Jimi Hendrix was a great one. Yep. Um, yep, he was. And I didn't know any of that stuff ahead of time. In that same day, while Jimi Hendrix was at those parties and on amphetamines, the Flip Wilson show was the number two show on TV. Sweet. It was an hour long. Do you remember the Flip Wilson I, show? I never saw it. It was an hour long variety show that aired on NBC from 1970 to 1974, starring Flip Wilson. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of the first American television programs starring a black person in the title role to become highly successful with a white audience. Specifically, it was the first successful network variety series starring an African-American. And during its first two seasons, its Nielsen ratings made it the nation's second most watched show. Well, the only thing I 
when I was little, I thought Flip Wilson was famous for those toothpaste commercials. Oh, yeah. Remember yeah. the Flip Cap? The yeah, Flip he was Cap on toothpaste? That was like after he was washed up. That's yeah, I know. Thing. That's all we and knew that's, him for. I thought that was what he was famous for. No, he, I think the, and the most famous thing he did on there was he had the role of Geraldine Jones. Mm-hmm. So he wore a oh. dress and drag, and he yeah. was a sassy modern woman who had a boyfriend named Killer. Um, and so there's a bunch of famous ones of him with Bill Cosby and people like that. Jeez, um, that's not good anymore. Yeah, no, that's not good, Bill Cosby. But back then, he was the shit. Yeah, he was. But, um, Saturday, September 19th, 1970, Diana Ross is the new champion of the Billboard charts. With? A gospel remake of another famous song. What is it? Ain't no mountain high enough. enough. I love that song. Have you heard her version, though? It like barely is the same song. It's like the hook is kind of that, but then it's the rest of it just sounds like a gospel song. Like it's oh really? Yeah, it's it's definitely not. What's the main version? Who sings the? Ain't no mountain high enough. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye does the original. Oh, he does. Ain't no mountain high enough. I feel like Terrell. I I feel like I think of Diana Ross, her version. No, you're thinking of this one, for sure. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, this is Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Listen, baby. But Diana Ross's version is awful. I'm going to play it. Yeah, that's bad. See, that sucks. It that's does just, suck. It's awful. Especially when that song is so good. Yeah, when the original is and awesome. And that one sucks, yeah. So, anyway, it's a shitty version of, you know, Mountain. High enough. Um, and then on Wednesday, September 23rd, 1970, mm-hmm. um, the movie Tora 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 came out, and we saw the eighth box, eighth growth, highest growth. Remember, we watched the yeah, preview. Yeah, I to remember this? that. It was weird. Yep. Um, it's like a war movie of some sort. Yep. Following, let's see, in 1941, following months of economic embargo, Japan prepares to open its war against the United States with a preventative strike on the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor. Yes. The film was considered a flop when it was released in the U.S., but was a huge success in Japan. Really? Yeah, it looked like a Japanese movie. Mm-hmm. When we watched the preview, it was kind of like, oh, what is, the hell is this? Yeah, it did. So again, it looked boring if as we hell. haven't explained it to you, we we are cheapskates, so we refuse to watch all the movies from 1970 because you got to pay for them. So we were like, uh, we'll watch whatever's free, and we'll just watch the and trailers. And I am not watching Tora, Tora, Tora. No, I don't want to watch that either. Um, but it was the at the eighth growing, um, highest growing movie in the U.S. Grossing? Grossing. You said that. You keep saying that. I keep saying growing, yeah. yeah. Eighth highest grossing, sorry. And then Friday, September 25th, just a few days later, it was the it was the premiere of The Partridge Family. Okay. Uh, the first episode aired, and it was created for television by Bernard Slade. The series executive producer was Bob Claver. The show was inspired by and loosely based on the Cowsills, a family pop music group that was famous in the late 1960s. Did you know that? Mm-mm. It was based on a real family? I did not. I had no idea. I did not know that. Um, in the show's early development, the Cowsill children were considered by the producers to actually be on the show, but because they were not trained actors and were too old for the roles as scripted, Slade and Claver abandoned that idea. Shirley Jones had already been signed as mother Shirley Partridge and star of the show. The pilot was filmed in December 1969, and, uh, yeah, stupid stuff, but anyway, it was the first, uh, airing of the partridge family and it was it went it was huge yeah it was did you know that i didn't realize how huge it was i just remember being hearing about it being something in the 70s but it was uh so popular uh the fame took its toll on most of the cast especially david cassidy Mm. in the midst of his rise to fame he soon felt stifled by the show and trapped by the mass hysteria surrounding his every move 
In May, yep. in May 1972, he appeared nude on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine in a cropped Annie Leibovitz photo. He used the article to get away from his squeaky clean image. Among other, other, other things, the article mentions Cassidy was riding around New York in the back of a car, stoned and drunk. So, anyway, Partridge family. Yep. He was, like, supposed to be... He was like a heartthrob. He was, big time. He was like, uh, well, in your terms, Kirk Cameron, kind of how you feel towards Kirk Cameron. No. Now you have posters of Kirk Cameron everywhere. I can't stand Kirk Cameron. You swoon every time I mention Growing Pains. And, might I remind <laughs> you, you knew the entire cast of Growing Pains without me even saying the show Growing Pains. That's true. Especially Boner. All right. He's your favorite character. Only I could bring up Growing Pains in the 70s. Episodes. Yeah, I know. Saturday, September 26, 1970, uh, Sesame Street character Ernie mm-hmm. made it to number 16 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Did he? With a song called Rubber Ducky. <gasps> Rubber Ducky, you're, you're the one. one. You Wait, make he made that it, time he, lots of fun. He made it to what? Hey, Bert. Hey, hey Bert. <laughs> Number 16 on the Billboard chart. That's like That was on funny. the Billboard. Rubber Ducky. Rubber Ducky. I definitely remember that song. Yep. It was on Sesame Street. Rubber Ducky, you're the one. Mm-hmm. And earlier this year, we talked about Kermit. It's not easy being green, That's right. right. Yeah. Yep. It's like the 70s, they were so more, much more open to all different kinds of music being on the Billboard charts instead of just the yeah. same thing all the time. Yeah. Like it is now. That's true. And kids, kids bop would never make it anymore. Mm-mm. But I also don't think... Doesn't seem like there's a lot of creative television it's true. songs anymore. Like it's just not well. Those were all Jim Henson. So yeah, it's all Jim Henson stuff. Like now, kids watch crazy crap, crazy awful shit. It's true. On Sunday afternoon, October fourth, nineteen seventy, producer Paul Rothschild became concerned when Janis Joplin failed to show up at uh-huh. Sunset Sound rec- uh, Recorders for a recording session in which she was scheduled to provide the vocal track for the already existing instrumental track of the song "Buried Alive in the Blues." In the evening, Full Tilt Boogie's road manager, John Cook, drove to the landmark Motor Hotel in Hollywood where Joplin was staying. He saw Joplin's psychedelically painted Porsche in the parking lot, and upon entering Joplin's room, number 105, he found her dead on the floor beside her bed. The official cause of death was a heroin overdose, possibly compounded by alcohol. Cook believes Joplin had been given heroin that was much more potent than normal, as several of her dealer's other customers also overdosed that week. Jeez. Her death was ruled as accidental. But she was a big hard drinker, too. She lives at Southern Comfort. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I read through this, and I had a big, long story like Jimmy's, and but most of it is just that she had some friends that were supposed to meet up with her that night, and they and they didn't, and... Uh, and they felt like she was sad because her friends were supposed to be there for her and they weren't oh. or something. But uh, um, they all said they were coming over and nobody did. And um, so the, her friends were like really upset that they didn't do that. And now for some reason I always heard she choked on her own vomit too. Or I think people just like to say that yeah. about anybody. Like people would say that about Amy Winehouse too probably. Yeah. No, all I, no, I don't see anything about her choking on her own vomit. But they do say that... Um, her her death really shocked the music world, especially right at 16 days after Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix. Also at the same age, they're both yeah, 27. That's right. That's like the height of your, you know, mm-hmm. your peak of your... Saturday, October 10th, Neil Diamond takes over the Billboard charts with yeah. Cracklin' Rose. I don't know that You song. do know that song. I didn't think I knew it either, but there's that... Say it loud, say it loud. Yes. Say it loud, my baby. Do, 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 do. Crackling rose, don't a bad bad do. 
Say it loud. Say it right. That's the part of it, right? Say it loud, my baby. Play it now. Play it now. Play it now, my baby. Play it now and not say it loud. <laughs> I guess I'm thinking of say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. <laughs> That's a little different. It's very different. I, you know, you know, all those Neil Diamond songs, I don't know what the hell he's saying, except the E.T. one. But it sounds just like put on your heart light. Yeah, it does. Uh, but this song, uh, people mistook the words uh, for, oh, I love... Oh, I love my rosy child. You got the way to make me happy. You and me, we go in style. Crackling Rose, you're a store-bought woman. You make me sing like a, a guitar humming that people thought he was talking about. Uh, devotion to a woman of the night. Yeah, kind of. I could see that. But in actuality, Crackling Rose is a type of wine. Oh. And Diamond heard a story about a native Canadian tribe. While doing an interview in Toronto, the tribe had more men than women, so the lonely men of the tribe would sit around the fire and drink their wine together, which inspired him to write that song. Tuesday... October 13th, 1970. Yes. There was a television show on starring three young, with three young outsiders fight crime as undercover agents for the police. One white man, one black man, one blonde woman, the Mod Squad. Oh. In that episode that night, Julie comes to the the assistance of her old teacher who was being targeted by others in her community for teaching sex education in school. Boom. And while that was on. Yes. So he was in that. That hearing. The hearing's still going on all and this time. All that stuff happened yep. while the hearing's going on. And so finally the charges in the Holy military shit. court. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin died while he was, he was in, in this, this hearing. hearing. Yep. So the charges, the military court dismissed all the charges against him. They thought he was innocent? They believe mm-hmm. him? Yep. And they recommended that civilian authorities investigate what? Helena Stokely, the girl. Well, I got to say, I didn't buy it at all. But once you said there was somebody who matched that description and she was kind of on drugs and stuff. Yeah. Well, and there was this big story of he was a doctor, and he was real strict doctor, and yeah. they all these drug addicts would go and try to get methadone from the doctors, yeah. and he never he would never give them any anything, really? and they resented him because of that. So, so that's a motive. That's yeah. motive right there, baby. That's motive. I know. I know how crime works. You now. do. Now you do. You taught me you're, a lot. You're good. So it was just that little thing, and and. In December, it picks back up. But oh, not, there's more. It's there's, not over. No, it's not over. I would think. Boom, boom, all over. Nope. It gets it gets worse. Oh no, there's more. It okay. Gets so much worse. Well, Mod Squad was on at the same time. And then on Thursday that same week, October fifteenth, nineteen seventy, the World Series matched the American League champion Baltimore Orioles against the National League champion Cincinnati Reds, with the Orioles winning in five games. In this series, Emmett Ashford became the first African-American to umpire in the Fall Classic. It also featured the first World Series game to be played on artificial turf, as games one and two took place at Cincinnati's first year Riverfront Stadium. Oh, wow. This was the last World Series in which all games were played in the afternoon. Oh, they used to only play in the afternoon. Apparently. That was the first year Riverfront Stadium. That's crazy, 1970. It's old as shit. Yeah, and you love River. That's one of your favorite baseball stadiums, isn't it? <laughs> Riverfront Stadium. I've only been to two in my life. You've been to two baseball stadiums. Yeah, which ones? Wrigley and um, Anheuser Busch. For the, so the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, we've been. You've been to Fifth Third Field in Toledo. Oh, that's to a see stadium, I guess. That's true. That's a baseball. So that's the three. Toledo Mudhens count. Yeah, that's true. You never been to Comerica? No. Detroit. Why would I ever do that? Because you love me. I never did. You don't love me. No, I never did go to that, is what I'm saying. Oh. Have you been the, to the Charlotte Knights here in town? No. BB&T Ballpark? Nope. Jeez. Why not? I've taken the kids several times. 
You're just not a you, you don't seem you don't strike me as somebody who's into baseball. I'm not into sports. You don't, even know what a, you don't even know what a balk is. Saturday, October seventeenth, nineteen seventy, mm-hmm. the Jackson Five are back on top of the Again. Billboard charts with another number one. Does it sound just like the other two? Nope. This no, I don't think so. This one is um this actually song became um this song replaced Marvin Gaye's I Heard It Through the Grapevine as the most successful single released on Motown in the U.S. Okay. A record that held until the release of Lionel Richie's duet with Diana Ross, Endless Love, <laughs> in 1981. <laughs> the crap. Until the yeah. crap, fantastic 80s love, came along. Endless Love. Mm-hmm. And if you want to pause the podcast here, then go back to our 1981 episode and listen until we get to Lionel Richie, Endless Love, just for shits and giggles, and then come back. That's insane. Oh, and now you're back. Welcome back. I'm glad All you right. went back to listen. You want to guess what song it is? I, I don't know. Uh, I'll be there. Oh, yeah. I'll be there. I'll be there to protect you. My All right. You. All right. No, I'm so glad that no, I found we're not, you. We're not getting to do that. I'll be there with a the love so strong. What's I'll next? I'll be your strength. You know, I'll keep That's how good. No. Uh, in his autobiography, Moonwalk, Michael Jackson noted that I'll Be There was the song that solidified the Jackson 5's careers and showed audiences that the group had potential beyond bubblegum pop. There you go. A lot of people were amazed that such a young kid. Because uh, Michael Jackson had just turned 12 oh the my day the song was released. And a 12-year-old singing about loving love forever. Yeah. That's weird. It is weird. You know? And and then we wonder why he got so fucked up. Like, right. Hey, 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 10-year-old, yeah. sing sexual songs towards women. And, and, then, and s- then have women throw themselselves at you. Yeah, and and then, then that's the other thing is the, the fans oh, yeah, were sure. all going nuts for him. Yeah. And he's like 12. He's a child. Yeah. It's like a little kid. It reminds me of Sweetback. Sweet, sweet, badass song. What a creepy movie that is. Remember that movie? Yes. At the beginning where she's yes. like, yeah, it's like, if you haven't seen Sweet, Sweet, badass song. Don't do it. Kids, it makes a great Friday night movie. No, pizza it, night with your family. It, it, it is bizarre. Yeah, it's very weird. Um, anyway, but yeah, so they, so, you know, we, we as a society fucked him up, you know, yeah. and his dad. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we'll force you to sing adult themes as a child. That's weird. Monday, October 26, 1970. Mm-hmm. Oh, so do you remember, have uh, you ever heard of Muhammad Ali? Yes. Uh, for the Muhammad Ali-Jerry Quarry boxing match in Atlanta in 1970, mm-hmm. printed invitations were circulated to attendees for a post-fight gala. The people who showed up were robbed at gunpoint as they walked in the door. Oh, wow. Three men met the partygoers at gunpoint, and more than 100 partygoers were there and forced to go into the basement and strip, strip and rob more than 100 partygoers were there and forced to go into the basement and strip, and they were robbed of all their stuff. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. How about that for a big uh, scam? That sucks. Yeah. That would suck. That's an interesting story there. Monday, November 9th, 1970, the Oregon Highway Division attempted to blow up a washed-ashore dead sperm whale. <laughs> the Oregon Highway Division... Attempted to blow up a washed-ashore dead sperm whale using half a ton of dynamite to dispose of its rotting carcass. The explosion threw whale flesh over 800 feet away, crushing cars and almost killing bystanders. Whoa. On November 9, 1970, a 45-foot-long, eight-short-ton sperm whale washed ashore at Florence, at Florence, 
on the central Oregon coast. At the time, Oregon beaches were under the jurisdiction of the state's highway division, which, after consulting with the United States Navy, decided to remove the whale using dynamite, assuming that the resulting pieces would be small enough for scavengers to clear up. Why were they wrong? George Thornton, the engineer in charge of the operation, told an interviewer that he wasn't sure how much dynamite would be needed, explaining that he was chosen to remove the whale because his supervisor had gone hunting. A charge of half a ton of dynamite was selected. A military veteran with explosives training who happened to be in the area warned that the planned 20 cases of, of, cases of dynamite was far too much. 20 sticks would have sufficed, but his advice went unheeded. The dynamite was detonated on November 12th at 3.45 p.m. Mm -hmm. The resulting explosion was caught on film by cameraman Doug Brazil for a story reported by news reporter Paul Lindman of KATU-TV in Portland. His voiceover, Lindman joked, that landlubber newsman became land blubber newsman for the blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds. Jeez. The explosion caused large pieces of blubber to land near buildings and in parking lots some lot distance away from the beach. There's a lot of bees in these sentences. Well, that guy did that on purpose. I know, but even after that, it was more bees. The blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds. Uh, blubber near the buildings. Yep. Um, in the beach. Only some of the whale was disintegrated. Most of it remained on the beach for the Oregon Highway Division workers to clear away. Uh, in his report, Lindman also noted that scavenger birds, who had been, who had been, who it had been hoped would eat the remains of the carcass after the explosion, did not appear. They're they were really scared to shitless because of the noise. Scared away by the noise. Yeah. Uh, the explosive expert veteran's brand-new automobile purchased during during a get-a-whale-of-a-deal promotion in a nearby city was flattened by a chunk of falling blubber. Ooh, so there were giant, big pieces. Yeah, big old pieces, crushing cars. Jeez, that's a big piece. Yeah, that's a big piece of blubber. God, how big was the whale? It was a sperm whale, so... I mean, if you had to blow it up to get rid of... How do they get rid of them now? I know. I wondered that, too. I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. I don't know. I mean, yes, you, you have to blow it up. What else are you going to do? Let it, let it sit there and rot? I don't know. What Bury it? You heard about that recently, that one, that mama orca, that this baby died and it swam with it for Aww. like weeks and weeks and weeks. And somehow the news got a hold of it. It was like, it just wouldn't let it go. It was like I heard about the guy who it. crashed the plane and died trying to find it. Some guy that stole a plane. He wasn't trying to find that whale. He, he went up and, and he, yeah, he said he said he wanted to find that mama whale. Oh, he did? Mm-hmm. That's why he stole that plane and crashed it in well, Seattle? Well, he stole the plane just for shits and giggles, I guess. Oh. But then when he was up there, he said he wanted to find that. Oh, I didn't hear that. That guy I heard was off his rocker. Yeah, he was. Monday, November 9th, 1970, the movie Ryan's Daughter was released. Whoa, that looked bad. Set in the wake of, yeah, yeah movies weren't... Wow, Good. this one, the, this trailer for this one looked really bad. Yeah, uh, set in the like, wake of the 1916 Easter Rising, a married woman in a small Irish village has an affair with a troubled British officer, starring Robert Mitchum, Trevor Howard, Christopher Jones, John Mills, Leo McKern, and Sarah Miles. Yeah, I think I fell asleep during the during trailer. During the trailer of <laughs> that. Yeah, that was <laughs> so bad. stupid. That looked really bad. Uh, makes English Patient look like a good movie. Mm. Boom! Boom on English patient. Boom, Muppet. In your face, Muppet, you son of a bitch. Muppet, you're no longer listen, allowed to listen to our podcast. <laughs> Stop we don't it. Allow no, no, Just no. kidding. Brandon Wilhelm is our favorite loyal listener with red cheeks. He loves beer. He's, <laughs> he's drinking beer right now at a brewery. Yeah, he probably is. I saw a picture. Half Acre, I think, is where he is right now uh, as we're recording this. Okay, Saturday, November 21st, 1970. 
Yes. The Partridge Family song takes over the Billboard charts from the TV show. What and what song? I think I love you. Oh, so what, what am I so afraid of? The guy who wrote that is Tony Romeo. Mm-hmm. He wrote a lot of songs, but this was the big his biggest hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time he tried to sing his own song, and it was called Mister Hunk a Chunk. Oh God! And it's awful. That sounds. Did you listen to it? Yeah, hey, I listened to it. You today. did. To, what the hell's Hunk a Chunk? It's a shitty. I, yeah. The shitty song. It sounds like one. Yep, it's stupid and dumb and crappy. And Monday, November 23rd, 1970, George Harrison subconsciously plagiarized a 1963 song called He's So Fine while writing his My Sweet Lord. My Sweet Lord, hallelujah. My Sweet Lord. I think that's way better, but they're talking about the one that, He's So Fine. Oh, yeah. You know, by the... Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. It kind of sounds the same, but... I don't. I think it's different enough, but mm-hmm. apparently not. He got. Uh, he got sued. Yeah, he got in trouble there. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah, they executed him. That's what happened. No, they yeah, did he, not. He got the electric chair. <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous. Well, he's dead. So. That's true. Okay, Saturday, Sunday, November 29th, nineteen seventy. So on this on the on this morning, a man and, and this is a different story. This isn't my yeah, this, Jeffrey McDonald story. Yeah. This is a little side story. This is a little side story. So um, I gave it to Amy because it, it's a man and his two young daughters. They they happen upon a body um, in this in the Isdalen Valley in Norway. Okay, that's not American. No, it's not. Um, it's a corpse, and it's oh. sprawled across some rocks, and its arms are extended in this what's called the boxer position, which is a common position. Oh, like Rocky. It's typical to bodies that have been burned. Ooh. They they have this position, so um, it, he um, a burned body on a hiking trail. It, yeah, it was it was off. It was out of the way though. It was an unusual place to walk. So um, the it was poli- an unusual place to walk. You said yeah. It's, okay. a, it's in a and so the police come and um, the body was burned all over, including the face and most of the hair. But strangely, it was not burnt on the back. Huh. It looked like she had thrown herself back. Is what the fire people said that she was like so badly burnt they couldn't imagine what she originally looked like oh wow um and the scene was cold by the time the police arrived so they couldn't tell how long the body had been there for and so this is called the isdal woman the isdal woman yes and police find all these objects at the, at the scene including jewelry a watch a broken umbrella and some bottles but the positioning of the objects, she's not wearing any of her jewelry. They've been placed beside her, and it almost looks ceremonial. That's weird. And um, then they also found a pair of rubber boots and some nylon stockings. She was wearing a but, lot of... But she wasn't wearing them. She was wearing those. Oh, she was. Um, she had been wearing a lot of clothes uh, that were synthetic, and they'd all been heavily burned. And the production labels had been cut off all of her clothes and rubbed off all the bottles that they found. The production labels. Yeah, like the tags. They ripped all the tags out? Yeah. And the bottles, too? Yeah, yep, and all the labels. Huh, why would you do something like that? I don't know. So there's nothing at the scene that indicates who this woman is. So they ask for eyewitnesses, and they describe her. Just so you know, DNA doesn't exist yet. Right. Do they even do do dentals back then? Do they rip out their teeth and figure it out? I don't know. Or do they have that technology? um, I think they did. I think they did. So... They, um, You're not an expert, though? I'm not an expert on that. Oh. When dental records started. Maybe I'm pretty should, maybe sure they should, uh, So they, they find a clue a few days later. Well, they let, find me just, let me just say, you should give up your, your dental podcast that you have because you're not, I'm not an expert. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
They find two suitcases at the Bergen Railway Station's left luggage department. Okay. One of them contains prescription-free glasses, and a fingerprint on one of the pairs matches the woman. It is the woman. Oh. So the suitcase contained clothes, several wigs, German and Norwegian money, and Belgian, British, and Swiss coins, a comb and a hairbrush, cosmetics, some teaspoons, and a tube of eczema cream. Several wigs. That's either a spy... Well, or, or it was 1970. Cynthia, the lady I work with, the, is one of the two. Yeah, the, or it was 1970. Oh, yeah? A lot of women wore wigs. Oh, yeah. they did? Mm-hmm. People just wore wigs? Yeah, mm-hmm. you know what? My mom had a bunch of wigs, now that I think about it. I don't, yeah. Why did she have those wigs? Did she wear those, I wonder? She might have. The, I uh, never people wore, wore wigs. They did. They just mix it up, I guess. They wore the wigs look. just to have a different style? I guess. Holy crap, I just remembered. I remember she had a wig. Whenever we'd get out my mom's wig... Like, we'd all put it on and run around the house and everybody laugh. Oh, look, one of the kids has the wig. Yeah. I never once questioned why, why she had, she a, had a wig. fucking wig. Unless it was a Halloween wig. It wasn't a I regular wig. I think so. I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to ask her. we got to have her on because she, she was alive in the 70s. Yeah. She knew what was going on. we got to ask. Right. We have, the, have both of our moms on one of these episodes. I know. I told my mom How about we too. do this? We have her on 72 when you were born. We'll have my mom on 76 when I'm born. Oh, there you go. That sounds good. Then we'll talk good. about our births. Yeah. No, we don't need it to get graphic about it. No, but we can, and then we can both question them about what drugs they did. What? Come on, you were high. What drugs did you do? Okay, go ahead. So and the wigs. Um. So e- e- all the labels had been removed. Even the prescription sticker on the eczema cream had been scraped off. Why? I wonder. All oh, the prescription because they don't want to know who it is. I guess. Well, they tried to trace any of the belongings. They contacted department stores abroad to see if the stores recognized any of the packaging on her Which makeup. Broad? Abroad, like across the pond, kind of thing. Oh, so across the pond, none of the department stores can find a match, and there's also a mysterious coded note in the case. Um, there's a plastic bag from Oscar Rotvert's footwear store, a shoe shop in Stavanger, and the owner's son remembered selling a pair of rubber boots to a very well-dressed, nice-looking woman with dark hair, who also was burned all over her body. And they stop. And it appears to match, the, the boots he sold her appeared to match the boots found on the body. He said she spoke English with an accent and had a calm, quiet expression. Huh. Um, using his description, police are able to trace the woman to St. Zvithan Hotel nearby, where she checked in as Fenella Lorch. The problem was... Fenella Lorch, y'all. Fenella Lorch wasn't her real I'd name. I'd like a large order of Fenella Lorch. No, you missed it. Vanilla Lorch wasn't her real name. How do you know? That's what they found out. They've discovered so the they found out that it emerged that she had stayed in several hotels in Norway using different aliases and had several and must have had several fake passports. There were oh. nine different um, hotels that she stayed at. So in she's either nine different criminal. Vanilla Lorch, though, that's a pretty cool name. I like, yeah. You, of course, you made that one up because right. nobody's name is Vanilla Lorch. So they learned in addition to speaking English, she also used some German phrases, and that she oh, would like often Schnitzel? she would often request a change of room. Sometimes she she on she, one occasion she asked to change rooms three times. She got pooping on the bed and like okay, it I want a different be. room. It's Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant's poop. Um, uh, Andre the Giant's poop is in this room too. I need another room, please. Holina so there was several rumors that she was a spy. Yeah, that sounds like a spy. Um, Wigs, changing they, rooms, Fenella Lorch. So police eventually cracked some of the coded notes, but it didn't provide any evidence that she was a spy. It was a record of the places she visited is all it was. So they probably were able to at least check check those places out, right? Yeah. Um, And they found out where she had been. So they investigate and examine. They do an autopsy. They find unexplained bruise on the right side of her neck that um, could have been a result of a blow or a fall. But there are no signs that she had been ill. She'd never been pregnant or had a child. 
Her death is likely to have been a painful one because there were smoke particles in her lungs, which shows she was alive while she was burning. Oh, man. Um, petrol had been used to set her alight. She had a high concentration of carbon monoxide, and there were about 50 to 70 sleeping pills in her stomach, although uh, huh. they had not been fully absorbed in her bloodstream before she died. Oh, I wonder if she was in so much pain. She died from a combination of carbon monoxide poisoning and ingesting a large number of sleeping pills. Uh-huh. And it was announced the cause of death is a probable suicide, but then nobody was, they were like, why would you? Why would you do that to yourself? You why would you just take the pills? Yeah. Um, so the case closed and the woman is buried in February 1971. Then in 2016, 2000, in 2016, the possibility yeah. of solving the case yeah. Rears its rears its head again. Rears its ugly head. That's right. So she had distinctive teeth. Fourteen of them were filled, and she had several gold crowns. Huh. These were especially unusual for someone in her age range, and is not typical of dental work seen in Norway. Um, there was this professor of dentistry that kept the woman's jaw, and after he died, everybody thought, oh, it's probably been destroyed. But then um, investigative journalists made they went looking for it, and they found it. Um, packed away in some cellar. So that gave Norwegian police the opportunity to reopen the case and yeah, use and the latest forensic techniques right, to try to identify the jaw. Yeah. So they did these tests and they um, found that she grew up along the French-German border. Okay. And, they, and they figured that because they that you can do the type of water that she drank when she... And, and, where that was so that shows where they Holy grew up crap. and then also your teeth reflect the type of food you eat and the type of soil in the area where you grow up that's nuts isn't that crazy so um they haven't cracked the case yet but they're hoping because they're also got some tissue samples they're, so they're still gonna, working on this shit yeah so they're going to send out crap. for dna and the and the dna came back and it showed that she was european descent so that she was an agent from israel or whatever wasn't wow. as likely Wow. So that was just the story of the Isdal woman. That was the story of the Isdal woman. Yes. Saturday, December 12th, 1970. We mm-hmm. got a new number one song. We're in December now. All right. What is it? What is that supposed to be? The, the success of this song led the Miracles lead singer, songwriter, and producer, Smokey Robinson, who had announced plans to leave the act to stay until 1972. Oh, Tears of a Clown? Yes. Stevie Wonder and Hank Cosby wrote the music for the song. Oh, really? I didn't know that. And Cosby produced the instrumental track recording, uh, and and uh, Wonder brought the instrumental track to the 1966 Motown Christmas party because he could not come up with a lyric to fit the instrumental. Wonder wanted to see what Smokey Robinson could come up with for the track. Robinson, who remarked that the song's distinctive calliope motif sounded like a circus. It does. Provided lyrics that reflected his vision and sang the lead vocal. In the song, his character, sad because a woman has left him, compares himself to the characters in the opera Pagliacci. Pagliacci? You know, Pagliacci? What, say what is a calliope music fo- good for? Comedians, clowns who hide their hurt, and anger behind empty smiles. What? Why, why do we have calliope music besides... There's no other place to... With a song. Like, cr- cr- circuses are the only place that you would ever have that. But then I read that... Um, Maybe it was just big back in the... I read that Alist- I think it was Aleister Crowley, the guy that founded Satanism, was an avid calliope player. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of creepy sounding. It is. But 
It was probably before you, we had. Can you imagine? I play the calliope. I don't think anybody plays it anymore, do they? I don't know. That's a good question. Somebody's got to. I got my dick stuck in a calliope once. You did not. All right. <laughs> you don't know. Um, you don't know where my dick's been. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> anyway, uh, the tears of a clown. Okay. We're done with that I don't part. Know how it goes? Yeah, tears of a clown. That's a good song, though. Despite the calliope, yeah, the calliope kind of eh, makes it not so good. That's why the calliope ones. No, it sounds really good. Okay, I was listening to it with my headphones as I was bebopping down the street. I was like, "This is a good song. Still holds up." All right. Right, and then on December fifteenth, nineteen seventy, the number one show that year of, of all of nineteen seventy was on, and it was called Marcus Welby, M.D. I, I remember hearing of that, and I never saw it, but... Well, this particular episode, a father with mononucleosis endangers his life by not following Welby's advice. That's what happens. It looks boring. I tried to watch a little bit. Of it. Did you really? It just seems boring. So, on that same day, well, first of all, in December... December 15th? Yeah. Yeah? It, first of all, in December, he received honorable discharge, and he went back to New York. Oh, who? Dr. McDonald? Dr. McDonald. And he goes on... He went um, back to New York. Makes all these media appearances. His kids and family are gone. Yes. And now he's doing media appearances? Yeah, he goes on the Dick Cavett show. On December 15th? Yeah. and Same time that Marcus Welby's on? Yeah. If you switch the channel, you'll see him on you know, Dick Cavett? Dick Cavett. And he makes, um, he makes jo- like jokes here and there, and he complains about the investigation. I know we and can find this online and watch yeah, it. Yeah, it is. Did you watch it? Oh, yeah. You did? Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard to... He like, makes jokes about it? He doesn't make jokes about it, but he makes jokes. Not about it, yeah. but you know, like he's joke, kind of jokey with Dick Cavett. And yeah, you're a you're a goddamn guy that and his family all died. So the um, he moves to Long Beach, California, the next year. But um, the his his father-in-law, Freddie Kassab, I think is how you say it. Freddie Kassab, his his, his father-in-law? Colette's father, Colette's his father-in-law. Father who he murdered. Begins to turn against him okay. after all these media appearances. I would too. And un- initially, Shit. he was a really strong supporter. Like he came out and said no all way, these wonderful no way he things. He would have done right. this. He's a great guy. Right. And so um, he wanted this transcript of the Article 32 hearing, and McDonald refused to give him, him a tr- the transcript of it. And so that Mc- pissed him off even more. McDonald had it, though? Yeah. They give you a transcript he, yeah. of your court case when you, you get it? You can get it, I guess. Huh. But. He not anybody can get it, you know. Like, yeah. so also he made um, McDonald would make contradictory and outlandish claims. Um, in November of 1970, he told Kassab that he tracked down and tortured and killed one of the killers, but refused to give the details of that. And he later claimed he Wait, lied to put to he, rest Kassab's persistence about finding the killer. So he told who that he did he that. He told the, the, father-in-law? the father-in-law that he went and tracked down and killed um, the, the killers. And later he says that he lied to put to rest because Kassab was so persistent about finding the killers. Oh, yeah. So once Kassab got a copy of the transcript, then he noted more inconsistencies in testimony. In March 1971, Kassab visited the crime scene to test physical evidence against McDonald's testimony, and this convinced him McDonald was guilty. So he filed a citizen's complaint through the Justice Department. Did it say what, what he found that made him convinced? Just the, the way that everything was you know like the there wasn't a lot knocked over and just those things mm-hmm. so um he he filed the citizens complaint through the justice department in early 1972 but was held in limbo because murders happened while mcdonald the murders happened while mcdonald was in the army when when herbert hoover 
no, when J. Edgar Hoover, sorry, was in the was the head of the FBI. Yeah. He um, was not allowing the civilian courts to deal with it. But then after he retired, um, after he left the FBI, the grand they went ahead with it, and a grand jury convened on August twelfth, nineteen seventy four. Oh, the same day that Nolan Ryan struck out nineteen batters. And Otto Van Heller won an 18-man battle royal, earning a shot at Bruno San Martino that day. And then on January 24th, 1975... The day that Larry Fine of Mo, Larry, and Curly died? The grand jury indicted McDonald, and he was arrested. What? Really? Yes. So then on January 31st, 1975... The same time Sanford on Sanford and Son, Grady and Bubba appear as contestants, appear as contestants at Wheel and Deal, hoping to win a new car. I don't think we can do this. With yeah, this, we can. You doing Go this ahead. every time. That's fine. He was freed on a $100,000 bail. Then um, on May 23rd, 1975... We'll he, Get By starring Paul Savino was on TV. He pled not guilty. Bam. Then on July 29th, 1975... The judge denies his, his double jeopardy. He was trying to claim double uh, double jeopardy. You know what double jeopardy no, is? No, explain double jeopardy to me. Double I've never jeopardy is that. if you have been proven innocent in a crime, you okay, can't be you can't you be, can't be retried, retried for it. For it. And uh, that's what he was trying to do. Evidence. Yep. Even O.J. Simpson could come out tomorrow and say, "I did it," and he won't get tried. Oh, is that why he put out that book? Yeah. I mean, you. But he had a civil lawsuit or something, right? He did, and he lost that. So that's why he can say that he did it now? Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, so on Tuesday, July 29th, he did what? He d- he, the judge denied that double jeopardy would, would work because it was a military court. Wait, wait. He denied? That he denied double jeopardy. Which means that he can be retried. He can be retried. That's the same day that Tattletales with Bill Cullen and Ann Cullen and Ron Cass and Joan Collins and Jack Ryan and Josh Gabor was on. It was a game show with celebrity couples. Um, and also, his other complaint was that he uh, spe- uh, you're supposed to be, have a right to a speedy trial, and that was oh, his other complaint. Yeah, that's definitely not speedy then. Right, but he, the judge many... denied that too. Oh, really? So well, good, because the judge probably saw him on Dick Cavett and was like, "This fucker's coming yeah. down." So um, he allowed the trial date of August 18th, 1975, to stand. After several court motions, murder trial began. The murder trial began on July sixteenth, nineteen seventy-nine. Now, why didn't it start till nineteen seventy-nine when you, it was scheduled for seventy-five? It just got delayed or something? Yeah, because well, that's four, yeah, four years. Yeah, it goes slow. So by the time it, it came to court, that's the same time Saddam Hussein became president of Iraq. Okay, then um, the prosecution had the the main things the prosecution had was the time magazine that he had with uh, with the article about the manson murders in it uh-huh. the type of holes in the pajama top matched up with they were in the same kind of configuration as the as the stab wounds on the wife so like if you had like like he had laid the top down and then stabbed her through the pajama top oh his own top his own top remember top that where he laid yeah, it down yeah yeah so the, oh so he laid it on top of her then stabbed yeah her. the holes were the why? same number as the why. times she was stabbed with identical pattern um and then also he's the, probably like holding her down or something with that Ugh. um there was an the, the prosecution also had this audio tape of his police interview oh, from okay. april 6 1970 yeah he was real matter-of-fact and indifferent while he was describing what happened in the murders. Yeah. But then he got real angry and defensive and emotional in re- in when they suggested that he was the killer. Which, wouldn't you, though, even if he weren't the killer, you'd still get emotional like that? Well, I think it's I think it's important not to say how people should behave when something like that happens, just because we none of us know what we'll do. What you would do. And if you're shocked or if you're if you're in shock or what, you know. That sounds like 
something somebody who's planning a murder would say. I'm just saying. You're planning to murder me, aren't you? There's been cases that people are in suspicion because of their behavior, and then later it's shown that they didn't do it, anything. If you're listening, please make note of this, that uh, if I murdered later, Amy did it. So the defense focused on Helena Stokely. Yes, I want to know more about her. Yeah, well, she called and denied any involvement, and they had oh, motions. Oh, so she's scot free. She called. Oh, she called. She so, called. Yeah, so she didn't do anything. motions. The motions to call witnesses who had previously heard her confess were not allowed into the court. What? So people the, that heard her confess. Yeah, they didn't allow them to come in and well, testify because it's hearsay. Oh, I guess that is hearsay. But isn't everything hearsay really? And then um, there was character witnesses called. To, to talk about what a great guy he was and yeah. how in a family guy he was and whatever. And he took the stand in his own defense, which is very yeah, rare. Yeah, you never do that. Yep. And he denied committing mur- the murders, but could offer no explanation against the evidence upon cross-examination. Oh, boy. So, um, in August he, 29th, oh 1979... Oh, the same day that Greg the Hammer Valentine fought Chief, Chief J. Strongbone, Chief J. Strongbone, Glen Falls, New York. I guess. Um, no, Greg the Hammer Valentine. We're not. No, we're not going into that. So it, he was convicted on August 29th, 1979, of first degree murder in the death of Kristen, his daughter, and then second degree for his wife and his other daughter. He was Kimberly. convicted, huh? He was convicted. March 27th, 1991, he became eligible for parole, but did not apply. And that's the same time Jake and the Fat Man was on. Continuing to vehemently maintain his innocence, because in order to get parole, you have to admit you did it. And you have really? to, yeah. And you have to say so you that you're denying, sorry. You keep denying it, even if you didn't. Yeah, you're you, stuck. In you jail. won't. Yeah, you won't. You will not get parole unless you admit it and show your remorse. Oh my gosh. So he won't. He didn't apply for the long time, but then he got married again. Of course, in jail because yeah. some weirdo wants yep. to bang him. So his time. second wife. You know, hey people out there, if you're having trouble getting a date or getting laid, don't get married. Go to jail. <laughs> yeah, that's where they. So go to jail. His, you'll get his married. His second wife urged him and his attorneys. Um, he applied for a parole hearing held May tenth, two thousand five. Oh, according to Jim, was on. And court and police. I mean, parole was immediately denied him. Probably because the judge wanted to go see, according to Jim. As is, the next parole hearing is scheduled for May 2020. And as oh. of 2015, he is serving a, his sentence at a federal prison and continues to maintain his innocence to this day. Well, let me try this. I know this is the future, but May 2020 will be when ALF, the remake, is on. The re, ver, the new version of ALF on Netflix comes out. So what do you think? You think he, that was the story of Dr. Jeffrey McDonald? I think, I don't think he did it. You don't? Because if he did it. He would be out of jail by admitting it, right? Um, Possibly, because he said he well, no, he, he did. He he did finally go and try to get parole, but but it was denied. It was denied. So he tried to get it. So he admitted to doing it. Or he I don't know. It. I, that's a good question. Well, you they just, just said, said they said at the urging his wife's urging and his attorneys, yeah. he he applied for parole. Oh, but I thought you said he couldn't. He didn't get it because he wouldn't admit it. It could we be. We just had the whole conversation. I know, I know, I know. But he he case. had never applied for parole before because he said he, he... Oh, but then he finally did. He finally did. I missed yeah. that. Ah, uh, well, I don't know. It really makes me think he did it once they... He acted all fishy on Dick Cavett. But I think now they have DNA because can't they... I mean, the scene's all gone, but can't they test everything for... I don't know. ...somebody else's DNA because nobody else's fingerprints came up anywhere. Right, that's right. No, but they all had gloves on, apparently, but... Yeah, I just can't believe they haven't 
we haven't found out more about that candle woman. Well, she I guess she was a big druggie and didn't she die she's dead. She's dead. She's dead and the guy that there her boyfriend was supposed to be one of the other ones that that was in there and he's dead now and Can't they uh you know, once they invent uh, resurrection, that's right. Bring people back from the dead. But I I feel like he did do it because first of all, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. I don't I don't think Nobody's going to say nobody that. Nobody would at that like you were saying earlier, it's exactly right. It sounds like Somebody who is is some straight nerd with a yeah. corn cob up his ass, yeah. trying to um, remember or, or think about what it would a hippie would say. It's like what the right wing thinks liberals are saying, yeah, stuff like that. Exactly, like they're all devil worshippers, and they're all you know, like yeah, these exactly. kids at the rock concerts love the devil. It's like no, nobody's lo- nobody's yeah. doing that. So it just sounds like somebody doesn't know what they're about. Yeah, guess, guessing. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, that's interesting. Huh, it's a it's a whodunit, it's a thinker. It's a noodle scratcher. It's a mystery. I'll scratch your noodle. All right, we have, All we have anything else? Now. Couple oh, we things. Got toys. Couple things. Wednesday, December 16th, the movie Love Story comes out with Ryan oh, O'Neill. Oh, and Allie McGraw. Is that right? Yeah, Ryan O'Neill and Allie McGraw. To prepare for the roles, both Ryan O'Neill... Uh, oh, Ryan O'Neill learned to ice skate and Allie McGraw learned to play the harpsichord. Wow. This was the film debut of Tommy Lee Jones, a Harvard Harvard graduate. Uh, Eric Seagal based Ryan O'Neill's character on Tommy Lee Jones and on his Harvard roommate, future vice president, Al Gore. What? They based the the character on Tommy Lee Jones and Al Gore? Ryan O'Neill's character was based on Tommy Lee Jones and on his Harvard roommate, like a mix of them. Tommy Lee Jones's roommate in college at Harvard was Al Gore. Al Gore, yeah. What? Yeah, imagine walking to that dorm. <laughs> Whoa! A lockbox. I didn't know. I invented the internet. I didn't know Tommy Lee Jones even went to Harvard. Yeah, he's a smart motherfucker. I guess so. And he he roommated with Al Gore. That's so bizarre. That's weird. They smoked pot together in the dorm. Probably did. That's pretty funny. Yeah, like actually, what was probably happening? Tommy Lee Jones was probably getting laid while Al Gore listened. <laughs> watched, watched God. Get laid. Oh, yipe. Yeah, so how about that little tidbit that's, of that's trivia? That's crazy. That's some trivia for you. Because, after all, this is kind of a trivia podcast, really. It is. And then uh, on the uh, another day, on uh, Wednesday, December 23rd, mm-hmm. Little Big Man came out, the movie Little and Big Man. And we have watched pretty much half of that. <laughs> we keep trying to get through it. It's a long-ass movie with lots it's of twists and turns. It's not bad. It's not terrible. It's just weird seeing Dustin Hoffman so young for me. Yes. That's the weirdest thing. And he's almost a sex symbol or something in it. Kind of. And he, it's, he he's plays, so not. The weird thing is he plays... A 105-year-old du- man. Yeah, Dustin Hoffman plays a, a really huge old man, Like, but he's got tons of age makeup on. And he's doing this old man's voice, narrating the whole story like this. That's right. And then the whole story, he goes in and he meets General Custer and he... he He's raised by Native Americans, then he goes to the white people, then he goes back to the Native Americans, back and forth. Yeah. And uh, so it's, more than anything, it's interesting to watch now. It's on Amazon Amazon Prime for free. Yeah. So it's the one movie we tried to watch. We've we've watched it, what, like four different nights we've been watching yeah. it. Yeah, like, it's so long. Asleep. It's really long, but it's, uh, just more than anything, it's interesting to me to see, I don't know, the style of acting mm-hmm. in the 70s, how different it was, and um, just to see Dustin Hoffman as a young guy is weird yep uh and uh i just keep seeing tootsie uh yes and uh rain man and rain man you know i just everything he says sounds like rain man but and also how good they've done it 
digitizing these old movies. Like it looks, it's good yeah, quality what they've true. done. I know. So, but uh, I guess it's good. I don't know. Christmas. You have some uh, presents on Christmas. I do. All right, we're not going to know a lot of these. So there was some of the Barbies from 1970. Was the new living Barbie who moves like you move with lifelike poses. Which so I'm not sure. So Barbie before that probably couldn't do anything. Yeah, couldn't bend or wasn't articulated or whatever. There was talking Barbie and her talking friends, including PJ, Ken, Christy, and Stacy. Talk teen, talk dates, dances, fashions, and more. So I didn't know they had a talking Barbie that early, but they did. Um, it's probably like a pull the string and talk. Yeah, that's I'm sure it was. Those are creepy. And then there was a console organ, Bon Tempe console organ. It was electric chord console organ with full 37 keys, treble keys, six bass keys, and six bass chords. Give real pro sound for you and your pop group, music book included. It, organs were such a big thing in the 70s. My, I remember Katie, we, yeah, we had Katie's organ. grandma had an organ. My grandma had an organ. Yeah, everybody had an organ. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Why was, why was that such My a big thing? My grandma had an organ. And she would, yeah. like, every once in a while she'd turn it on, but it's like, no, it generally just became a furniture because you yeah, put stuff on it. Exactly. She played every once in a while, but who can play it? My grandma could. She could? Yeah, it had all these like different Your grandma that's alive now? Yeah. Could play the organ? She played the organ. She played the piano too for a while. She, oh, had she a piano. did? I didn't know that. Yeah. And she played the organ. She was really good. And then she would like nope and then she wouldn't touch it for forever three and years. And I'm like, Grandma, why won't you play that organ? I don't know. I don't want to. I don't know. Isn't that just funny that that was such a big seventies instrument? That was and a it went away. Thing. Yeah, and then nobody plays the organ now. Yeah, anywhere. No, not even churches don't even. Then there was a chatty Kathy doll, and she um, talks, whispers, and even sings nine different times each time you pull her talking ring. Prettier than ever with bright red polka dot dress. So she whispers. Wouldn't that be creepy? That's creepy as hell. Yeah, it would. Then there was a doll called Dressy Bessie, and now these I remember. This Dressy Bessie doll is from play school, and it's this. Yeah, right, it's, it's a it's a stuffed. <laughs> It's a stuffed um, baby doll, but it's got a vest on, and it's got a zipper and some buttons and some snaps and called, some ties. It's called Dressy Bessie. Yes, and um, you would you could you could learn how to tie and snap and button. Oh, I could teach you those things. So it's for little kids. Yeah, it's for real little kids. Oh yeah. Then From there was 1996 in Denver. Then there was Frosty Snow Cone Maker. Just add ice cubes, syrup flavoring, and turn the handle. And of course, you know that probably didn't work at all. What was or it called? Frosty Snow Cone Maker. Yeah, those were... And the Snoopy Snow Cone Machine never worked for shit. That was shitty as fuck. So I'm sure this one didn't... Uh, either that or it was very sharp blades that would slice your finger off. You know, because it was a 1970 yeah, toy. Yeah, Then there was Gigantor Robot. Gigantor. He, the, he was a giant 17-inch walking robot with superpowers. He walks, his chest doors open when he stops, and giant guns come out and fire with rapid shots with a rapid, realistic, rat-a-tat-tat sound while lights flash and his upper body rotates. Then there was G.I. Joe Astronaut. G.I. Joe Astronaut is in orbit, performs space maneuvers, including his spacewalk for the beginning of new space adventures. G.I. Joe in 1970, if I'm not mistaken, it looks like a doll. Yeah. It's like a Ken doll. It right? is. I think so. Yeah. He's yep. got a beard. <laughs> yeah. Um, they had some Hot Wheels. There was Hot Wheels involved. They had Mongoose and Snake Set and Drag Shoot Stunt Set. And then there was this music box that had a ballerina in it, and I had one of these. And you, you open the lid, and the ballerina would turn, and there's this little tiny ballerina in yeah. the music box. Um, and that I think every little girl had one of those. Yeah. 
Then there was an NHL table hockey. Every little girl wasn't killed by her dad who's a doctor. That's true. She probably had one, too. Um, There was NHL table hockey with the top teams in 1971, the Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh, those are your two favorite hockey teams, honey? So it was like air hockey, I think, or table hockey. Yep. Oh, yeah. We had the same thing. So it's kind of like foosball. It was so hard to play, but we had it. It looked just like that. We had that exact one. Oh, wow. And you could turn the guy, and he would flip the little puck. Um, Yeah, we had that. We had a, I think we had one with the Toledo Gold Diggers on it. Huh. Then yep, the last, the last thing is a talking viewmaster. I'm gonna blow yep. your mind again by the one that talks. But um, a talking talk? viewmaster. Watch and listen to your favorite cartoon characters or special events. Some of the viewmaster reels available with sound include Alice in Wonderland, The Flintstones, Bugs Bunny, Snow White, and from last year, the Apollo moon landing with sound. Uh, so that was the year after the Apollo moon landing. So, so those were the toys from 1970. You thought I maybe wasn't going to do toys, but I, I kind of hoped you wouldn't do it. But I did. But you wasted everyone's time with those. Nope, it was. Delish. Yeah, there's some jackass that listens to our podcast secretly that won't tell us and won't rate us and won't review us. That's like, oh, toys. Oh. They play with the toys while I re- talk about I them. The toys. I'll get go get the, it right now. I'll go get my old toys out right now. Well, I'm listening to the podcast. Yeah, I'm going to play with my hockey team. Uh, I had one other thing. <laughs> it was really just uh, an elaboration again because that, so earlier in the year I talked about when George Harrison stole that song. Yep. Uh, on December 26th of 1970, it uh, became number one on the Billboard charts, uh, My Sweet Lord. Okay. Uh, so he didn't have to, like, stop recording it, it or it be- anything? It became, it was at the center of a heavily publicized copyright infringement suit due to its similarity to the Ronnie Mack song, He's So Fine, a 1963 hit for the New York girl group, The Chiffons. In 1976, Harrison was found to have subconsciously plagiarized the earlier tune a verdict that had repercussions throughout the music industry. He claimed to have used the out-of-copyright Oh Happy Day, a Christian hymn, as his inspiration for the song's melody. And George Harrison was murdered. He was not. He was. No, he wasn't. Well, how did he die then? I don't remember, but he wasn't murdered. You don't know. Hi, I think I'd know. Any, I forgot to... Uh, just to clarify that earlier thing, Greg the Hammer Valentine fought Chief Jay Strongbow uh, at Nobody Glens cares. Falls Civic Center. And Andre the, Giant, Andre the Giant Tito Santana took on WWF Tag Team Champions Jimmy and Jerry Valiant. Just I was just, Nobody cares about that. Well, you do. You just were upset that there wasn't so much wrestling. So no, I, I, was find, gonna, I was getting excited about it. But do you know who Greg the Hammer Valentine is? I've heard you blabber about him. What do you think about him? I don't have a fucking opinion about this. He's got long blonde hair. Mm-hmm. He's got like feathered hair. All right, was that it? He's a big fan. And he falls flat on his face all the time. He does a great job of that. Was that the end? That's it. That's all I got, baby. All right, that's so that was 1970 in two episodes. Yeah, we're now finally done with 1970. The next. Oh man, we're stay tuned. This is our third season, and we're still doing this same old thing. That's right. So get buckle down. And we're gonna. We, we got, got a lot more, more go. years. Got a lot more to do. I'll I'll admit, I think. These 70s are going to be good. There's a lot of stuff I've never heard of or yeah. knew about, and we're learning a lot of stuff. And That's nothing right. went viral. Yep. Nothing that went viral back then, so nobody heard of any of this stuff. That's right. So it's and the first time. Yeah, when nobody had a cell phone. So make sure to rate us and review us and subscribe. And yeah, give us, just start sending us bags of cash. And all that stuff so we don't have to drugs. have our jobs. Um, Send us drugs. 
No, you don't want drugs. I do. I can use You sound like you could. You can sound stuffy. Okay, so. Send us antihistamines. Yes, let's do that. And get out of here, Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry. You are no longer welcome on the podcast.